Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I am very pleased to be able to thank fellow saloners Connell E., Petrov M., Jonathan R., Eric H., Ross T., and uh, to another anonymous Bitcoin donor, all of whom uh, have made contributions to the salon this week to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And, uh, hey, I really appreciate your help. Thanks again. Also, I want to thank you for being here with me today. (laughs) Because, uh, well, I know that whenever I post a program that has the word or the phrase Burning Man in the title, that uh, some of our fellow saloners won't listen to those podcasts because, uh, well, for one reason or another, they aren't interested in this event. It's a shame, uh, actually, because, uh, well, you don't have to be interested in the Burning Man event itself in order to get a lot out of today's talk. Our featured speaker is Marion Goodall, who, as you will soon hear, is Burning Man's CEO, that is, Chief Engagement Officer. But even if you have no intention of going to a burn yourself, or even if you have some kind of objection to the event, well, the history of how it has evolved is really worth knowing, particularly in regards to its relationship to the many and various government bodies that, uh, well, they want to regulate not just Burning Man, but all gatherings of free-spirited people. So this information is really worth knowing to anybody who may one day decide to organize an event of their own. And I'm talking now here to uh, our fellow saloners who may even still be in their teens. One of the main reasons that I've been doing these podcasts is to leave some little bits and pieces of early psychedelic history here in cyberspace for anyone who may come after us so that, well, they can better understand how to approach similar issues and problems uh, as they come up in the future. And when it comes to creating a long-lasting and uh, what may seem like an outrageous over-the-top party, well, the lessons that can be learned from the history of the evolution of the Burning Man organization, I think, can uh, be quite valuable. So now let's join Chris Pezza as he introduces Marion Goodall, who must have been the very busiest person on the playa that day, uh, and yet who very graciously took some time out of that day to answer, uh, well, I guess I should call them burning questions, <laughs> from members of the Planque Norte audience, who that day included Annie Oak, John Gilmore, and Rick Doblin, among others. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Camp Soft Landing. You're at the Planque Norte Lecture Series. It's wonderful to see you all at this lovely Thursday afternoon in Black Rock City. Uh, so today we're going to kick off our, our lectures with a, with a very special talk. Um, we have Marion Goodell here, uh, founding board member and CEO of the Burning Man Project. Marion has taken some time out of her week here in the city to uh, spend some time doing Q&A with us and um, is going to have a discussion with the audience. So um, with that, I'm going to give you over to Marion. Thanks for coming, Marion. Hello. There you go. See what's comfortable to sit here for a while. That works. Um, so, hi. Thanks for being here. Well, it works both ways, huh? <laughs> I was just asked by um, Teresa, where are you? Teresa's um, over here 
Teresa's a candidate for one of our director positions at Burning Man. Yes, uh, director of development, actually, um, that we're looking for. So she's here with me, watching me do a little bit of my thing. Um, what I want to do today is just introduce myself briefly um, and ask a couple questions of you guys. And then I would love to really launch mostly into a Q&A. Um, I'm going to use a method I've just started using recently that John said that he uses. And I'll ask um, for a, a bunch of questions, and then I'll try to group them together. Uh, the answers will all kind of group together in sort of a storytelling kind of way. Um, so w after I do my intro, then we'll pass the mic around, and I'll start collecting the questions. Um, so raise your hand if this is your first Burning Man. Ah. Um, raise your hand if you've come more than 10 years, more than 12, more than 15. Of course, the three of you, <laughs> which is kind of sweet because I'm here because of the three of you. I really respect the work you guys have been doing. And Teresa asked me, how many of these talks do you do? Um, I was asked to talk at a number of different places, and I talked um, on BMIR, and I came um, here because I've always enjoyed the conversation and the questions um, they're usually very intelligent and thoughtful, and um, so thank you for inviting me. Uh, so my name is Marion Goodell. I am the first uh, CEO of Burning Man, and I like to call it the uh, Chief Engagement Officer uh, because really that uh, it's great that the outside world uses the CEO term because it works for me to be called CEO, and it gets me in the door. But really what my job is is to engage um, I have, this is my 21st burn, and I have been um, part of the organization. This is the 19th one I've helped produce, and I helped build the communications department, the technology. I, I uh, Some of the business, good portion of the business processes, uh, government relations, and then I also uh, ran the DPW uh, for about five years between 03 and 08, 09. Um, and I built the regional network, uh, which started in 1997. So you can sort of tell with the communications and technology side that that's, it comes up that I like to engage people. I like to connect people together. I don't do the art. Um, and I didn't do the, all the, the volunteers and the community service here at Burning Man. That's not parts that I oversee. Um, in, 19, in 2011, uh, the six LLC founders, which are founder owners uh, that had been running the entity since 2000, 1999 or 2000, we took our LLC and we uh, gave it to a nonprofit that we had started. Um, we started the, the new nonprofit in 2011, and we gave the LLC to the nonprofit in December of 2013. So instead of being a person that was completely in control of everything with six other people, I'm now an employee, um, and I report to 16 board members, which is a fascinating transition to put yourself through, but really, really uh, very cool. Uh, we were always in service to what we were doing, and it just um, it formalized our philosophical intention in the first place. So with that, um, I would love to open it up to questions so that I can get an idea of what kind of things I can answer for you guys. So, yeah, so just ask your question, and I'll try to remember them, or um, and then I'll circle back again. Okay, thank you. Um, so I actually have three, but I'll try to go quick. Um, so one is how do you think about reconciling um, the dematerialization and decommoditization with 
like the amount of money and objects that are bought and come into the system. Objects and just like you know, okay. we all we all come here and go to Walmart and spend a thousand dollars. Well, you didn't have to go to Walmart. I know, I'm just kidding, <laughs> but it happens. Oh. <laughs> I didn't either. I promise. Target. Um, <laughs> and then the second is how do you she, keep? No, she's got it. How do you keep Thank a you, strong John. culture as you, as you grow? I think it's been like such an incredible story of growth with keeping like the core. Um, and then the third is how do you think about bringing the principles outside of of this like week and this event? Um, and like what role do you play versus let that be a grassroots movement? Yeah, has uh, there been any thought to uh, trying to store solar and wind energy throughout the year, and then uh, having it available to power some of the lighting? And there's a lot of gas being burned here. I noticed so a lot of generators. You touched on the new organization structure of Burning Man. Um, it seems like Burning Man is in a position to kind of be a leader in terms of how to run and structure and organize revolutionary organizations. Um, I'd love to learn more about what your thoughts are and how you guys are differentiating from the traditional nonprofit structure and what your what can be done to incorporate maybe some more social entrepreneurship or social business mentalities to sustain and grow organizations as well, as opposed to pure donation based and things like that. Um, yeah, I'm sure over time um, between uh, BLM and Pershing County um, challenges, um, there have been thoughts of having the event. You know, in other places, maybe private land, those kinds of options. And I'm just kind of curious of what what discussions have been happening. That's why that it's point. so much fun to come here. Every single question's intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. The principles are an amazing um, set of uh, philosophical ideas and insights. Um, how have you thought about what different ways could be used to inculcate those principles in everyone who, who comes here, not not only for the week, but for the rest of the year? Yeah, um, a lot of people come here for kind of celebratory spiritual experiences and communal settings. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you will try to foster those and, and what kind of relationships might you see for how the Zendo services and how psychedelic harm reduction might evolve over the years to come. Hi, um, I'd like to have an overview of um, the risks and the people that are opposing um, Burning Man, the organization of, of Burning Man, as it has grown over the past years. Uh, I'd love to have kind of an overview in how, as a burner, we can help uh, making sure that Burning Man continues living on for, for as long as possible. You want to know the risks um, as it's been growing and the risks now to its survival. Have you thought about asking for a lot more money from people when they buy a ticket, either to make some sort of like Kickstarter type program where people can vote with a dollar on our projects or maybe raise a bunch of money to buy a ranch? Is that? I'm interested in your thoughts about Japlaya and the future hmm. of people camping in the upper playa at different times of the year. I'm curious what your top few challenges are and you know what we can do to uh, help work on those. And also, I have a feeling one of those challenges is that 100 miles of two-lane road between here and the rest of the universe and what's... Uh, 
what are your possibilities for dealing with that? Yep. Uh, hi. Hi, uh, my name is Tilek. I have a question. What's your What's your long term vision? For example, for two thousand hundred, and if you had one magical wish uh, about improving Burning Man, what would it be? For example, having our own planet or something really like outside of outside of actionable. <laughs> and one magical wish you said to improve Burning Man. Okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Chill out on the drums for a second. <laughs> like 150 seconds or more. <laughs> uh, okay, great. This is a good start. In fact, there's a lot of. Uh, oh, you've got your hand. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just real quick. Um, I was just curious because from my own experience in like uh, growing our theme camp, uh, we grew a bit too fast um, uh-huh. and learned the importance of preserving our camp culture. And uh, I was curious because obviously that uh, that, uh, I'm sure you kind of share some experience and uh, I'm curious how you see in the future how to preserve the culture safely while growing, um, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yep. Okay. This is plenty to keep us busy. Um, and then, if, and if we have time again, then we can ask more additional questions. Um, so, uh, obviously, lots of questions about the future. Really, I sort of that's what's the future look like, and what are we doing to manage um, the ten principles out in the world, and specific questions about um, decommodification. Um, to some degree, uh, leave no trace is the energy. Um, and uh, the risks that we have in, in keeping the event alive and going. So I'll start kind of working and wandering my way through it, and we'll see if I, we can, I can hit everything. I'll start with the last one, which actually is similar to the first one. You asked about your camp and, scal- and, and, and scaling, and that is actually, um, the, I think, similar to the first one that was asked about. We have, we have a strong culture, um, and what are we doing to manage it as we grow? Uh, and it will easily drift into a, a bunch of the others. Uh, I think philosophically, that's the core problem that the organization is engaged in. Is uh, you've got the event, and how do you scale the event, and how do you scale your camps? Um, how do we scale Black Rock City, and then how do we scale the culture? Um, the ten principles were practical response to the regional network. We didn't sit down, Larry didn't sit down one day and come out with this little book and put it on the table. Uh, We had the regionals had begun to come to the surface and we started choosing them. Uh, People would self-select after a Burning Man event and say, I want to find everybody in Austin, I want to find everybody in Dallas. And I would interview them and over time the interviews were not just you got it, but now we've had to figure which one would get it. And then they needed they, – they were on an email list, and they would ask each other questions all the time. And I was so busy I could barely get the answers out to them. But I knew some of the answers. So I put Larry on the email list, and I made him read everything. And I finally said, could you please answer this question about why we don't sell anything anywhere? Can you please answer the question about why there's no trash cans? And finally, he went away for vacation, and he came back with these nine principles. And we kidded him and told him that that was just absurd. There, there should be ten principles, of course. 
So he came back the next day, and he and he ended up with the his favorite is immediacy, which is the last one, which is fun, funny because it's often the one when I'm repeating them, that a bunch of us can never remember it. Um, and that those were created. I know it's like it's all ironic, um, the immediacy one, and they were created in order to help guide the story about what was happening here and what key markers could be uh, found and potentially reproduced elsewhere to then scale the culture. Um, and so when we started the we started the Black Rock Arts Foundation, which was the first one we started in 2001, and then we started Black Rock Solar, um, which was related to the Green Man theme, for those that were have been around long enough to know the Green Man theme. Um, and then we started... Burning Man Project in 2011, and everything in the mission for the Burning Man Project is to take what these these lessons are. We we sat together, and we we ended up with six areas of everything we did. We talked; to, it took like nine months to figure out what the fuck. You know, we knew it, we knew it was happening. We can feel it, but like, what do you? How do you map it into social good? How do you actually do the storytelling around <clears throat> what does happen at Burning Man, which is a, a feeling of connectedness and a feeling of being able to be more yourself, and when you when it really clicks and it takes hold, you can actually uh, do more powerful things out in the world because you found the power within yourself, the drive and the motivation to make change happen or to just to be yourself in the strongest way possible. And this place just gives you that route and gives you that permission. Um, so great. Now, how do you write that up in a nonprofit? And how do you go out in the world and raise money um, and do the storytelling? Um, we are focusing all of our energy on the survival of the event at the moment. Uh, we definitely are limited by uh, the road system. Um, I understand that the traffic on Sunday was eight hours from uh, Wadsworth to uh, Black Rock City, which was incredible. W- were you in it? Um, <laughs> and I learned a lot about we don't we don't really know why it happened like that. Um, we weren't expecting it. Um, we learned a little bit more. One thing we are watching is the pattern of people coming earlier. We, I was just talking to Charlie today. Fifteen years we've been keeping daily population. Um, we, pe- we used to have our peak population on Friday night or Saturday morning. Our peak population now is usually Thursday night or Friday morning. And then more people are coming earlier, and we're giving more early arrivals. So that's one of the things. But it's a million dollars a mile to expand the road system. So we have to find different ways to um, scale the event. Uh, and the, one of the only ways we can scale the event is going to be to scale the culture and then to encourage the work that's happening out in the world with the regionals. So I'm, I'm mapping the pattern here. Um, Black Rock City is the largest of the experiences. We cautiously believe that we could find, I don't know that we can find property or land that is going to do exactly what we're doing. Um, we kind of gave up on that some time ago when we thought we maybe would have to leave this property. Um, the spot, the federal government is our number one, uh, it's our, they're the master tenant, so to speak. Uh, the county, Pershing County, is the secondary uh, government agency that we're responsible to. And then we also are responsive to uh, Washoe County that we drive through, um, the Paiutes, 
um, the Nevada Highway Patrol, and a couple of other important um, law enforcement and governing agencies, including the Health Department, Nevada State Health. It's This is my lesson that I still hold very tightly. When we were on private land in 1997, which was uh, over here, there's a small playa called the Wallapai Playa. It's as the crow flies about four or four miles. You can see it actually on the Google Earth. Um, It's 12 miles by car, and it was called Fly Ranch, Fly Hot Springs, and the the playa. We we had 10,000 people there. Um, Being on county land, being on you're under the jurisdiction of elected officials and elected officials change and elected officials have their own paranoia so our experience in 1997 was horrible Uh, we were charged money at the last minute we were charged $350,000 for fire protection and we were on a dry playa this is like still more than we even spend now 15 years later Um, and so the lesson I took away from that was avoid avoiding elected officials that to try as much as possible then deal with a government agency that's mandated to allow you to gather and allow you to gather on public land because then we have watched morality come up as an issue um persian county is a small poor mormon county so there's a constant pressure about nudity um, and sex acts and things like that. The Persian County Sheriffs, that's their, that's their number one issue. Nudity around um, parents uh, or adults. So children and adults, children, nude children around adults. Like These are the things that we're actively dealing with in policing. You, you've either read us because you're in a theme camp or if the theme camp fills out a form that mentions any sexual activity, we actually call it and talk to the theme camp about what the county wants. So these are all these are all the conditions by which we're navigating and floating to sort of keep the center in Black Rock City. Um, Fourth of Japlaya is one of the is probably the only other event that happens in the Black Rock Desert that people affiliate with Burning Man, but it uh, is dispersed recreation. Um, the permit we have comes under something called a special recreation permit. And if you have more than 49 people gathering on the Black Rock Desert together, you need to have a permit. So for the Japlaya happened in 1996 when some people wanted to come and hang out on the playa but not during Burning Man. And I'm one of the people that was on an email list and we all tried to figure out how to do that. And in the course of looking up, and it was 96, maybe the first group came out, and then 97 when I was part of the organization, we read some regulations. And so it's dispersed recreation in that there are people out, but the groups are all um, separate um, because nobody runs it. It's not organ- There's no organizer. Each group brings their own toilets. Um, you need to drive from camp to camp. Um, the BLM kind of hates it. Uh, it looks a little bit to them like um, Southern California um, ATV and motorcycle gatherings. Um, when you have uh, sort of leader, li- when you don't have an- when you don't have leadership, clear leadership helping organize something, law enforcement and government agencies get really kind of uncomfortable uh, because then they're going after and they got to try to manage your behavior and your behavior and your behavior. They'd re- much rather have some sort of framework. So for the Japlaya is not one of their favorites. They've blamed it on us twice, and we've gone and done everything we can to sort of undo it. Now, the question, though, is whether um, the organization would be interested in doing events um, off-season uh, in order to take the pressure off the 70000 
Um, and it's a really, really, really interesting question. Um, I would say that that answer will become a little more important and clear in the next couple of years. Um, it's a lot of work to do this one. Uh, we do have property that's 17 miles away. It's just past where the old location is. Um, it takes us... A, <laughs> people were surveying here on the 30th of July. Um, and then the takedown, we're done... It's probably be the 10th of October. So it's a very... It's a pretty long 8 to 10 week project and process. We've also talked about, well, if we had a piece of property, what, what kind of infrastructure we would put on it, whether we put long-term infrastructure that would allow us to um, make it easier, make it faster. Uh, we're pretty convinced that part of what we what's really good about this experience is that we're all bringing it together, not just the organization, but we're all bringing it together, and there's it's never exactly the same way twice. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion. If we had property, then would we do events? If we did events... How many would we do if we did them? How large would we do them? Um, what is an effective number? How many days? Uh, one of the things we're learning from the regional network is that anything less than three days is not quite enough to get in deep and connect and really feel yourself. Um, I've been to Coachella. I've been to Bonnaroo. I've been to other festivals. Two days is like two days. Three days or more. Like, we really prefer five days. Three to five days. You come in, you settle in, you get you get that feeling, you get connected. It's almost like going to a conference. My favorite little conferences are not two days. They really are like three days where you finally have enough range. Like, this is the size of this room. This is an interesting size of people. Like, if you had this many people go away for a weekend together um, for two to three nights like a Thursday night and you leave on Sunday, you will get a lot of work done. You get a lot of connection done, whether it's whether it's content has been for, formatted or whether it's pretty open content. And so we're, we watch all those kinds of numbers. About theme camp size, fascinating watching theme camps. Fascinating watching which size a theme camp before they need food together. Um, what size, then you need to have a manager, how many hours a week and uh, for how many months a year a manager does it. Um, all of this is us studying um, each other, if you will. The organization has not been as driven to have all the answers. What we've been really driven to do and what we've cultivated in ourselves is an openness to watch what the experience is and watch the response and learn from the theme camps that um, have overscaled themselves um, to learn uh, to to collaborate. Also, the, the most one of the most recent lessons I think the organization has learned is to listen to the leadership of the theme camps, um, to to open ourselves up to listening to the questions, um, artists, um, their or organizations, different organizations like yours, um, the popularity of Burning Man now that it now that Black Rock City is this seminal uh, moment in time where we're bringing uh, people and ideas and groups and companies together we the organization has to be responsible to not just let everything disperse and then at a particular point sort of bring it back again I think that we're now curating um, and tending to all of the experience, including the new organizations, organizations that want to help. Um, the question the gentleman asked about um, uh, fuel, 
is one of the, the most recent ones. And your question about the organization's, uh, you know, support of the Zendo project. Uh, both of those questions are interesting to me because if you really look at who we are and where we're from, and certainly Annie and John probably know the most um, of anybody around here since they've known us for a long time, and John has spent a fair amount of time pointing out when we were drifting from uh, certain things. Um, we had a, a we had an Electronic Frontier Foundation moment in time, but it was great because uh, just like the question about fuel and just like the question about harm reduction, um, at the time, it was a question about um, electronic rights and photo rights, copyrights, right, your copyright for your ear. And we, we thought we were doing the right thing by creating certain restrictions. Um, and then everything changes. Technology changes. Our society's attitudes change. Uh, there's no way in 1997 when I first uh, helped organize, nobody in the organization was talking about how much fuel we were using. No, and biofuel, who knew what biofuel really was in 1997? Um, we knew that burning things was, a, there was a lot of burning of, of stuff. Like that was really kind of awkward. At the end of Burning Man, people would just put all their shit into these big piles and people would abandon it all. So then our staff would just put it all in a pile and burn it. And I remember watching all this stuff burn one time. We were all like, this is kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> what is this? Like awkward. Um, so and there, you'll, there's actually fewer things that burn than they used to. Like in 90, 1996, John's shaking his head. That's the way I feel. Like things used to burn a lot of stuff would burn. Like it always smoke in the air. And now it's more dramatic burns. Um, but we're still asking ourselves that question. We're still trying to um, put alternative fuels into place as much as we can. We're trying to work with solar and wind as much as we can. We do own properly, property not too far away where we're using wind and solar. Um, there is, you know, a lot of it's a li- is limit financial limitation. There's a group uh, on staff that wanted to build a large container, and that container would be all the batteries to light the man um, with, with solar energy. And the estimate for that was $150,000. And so the question was, where are we taking that money from in order to do that? Like, what was the what, and what's the long-term value for that? Um, this is a dialogue that's internally is maybe three years old, maybe five-ish. We did the the Green Man theme in oh oh seven, yeah, oh <clears throat> seven, and that's the first time I'd ever I heard of carbon credits uh, for, to for what is it when you travel and. Uh, Steve, uh, who is a David David Shearer, who's really involved in alternative energy, came to the organization and said he wanted to start Cooling Man, which was a, a web page where people can go and um, and offset their credits. So I know that you all are probably more involved and sensitive and aware to the, 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 of those questions than the organization is. So that's why we open ourselves up to the solutions rather than just saying, "Oh, right, you're, we haven't done this." We're constantly taking in ideas about um, and, and innovative ideas. It's not just you need to do this, you need to do that. We need innovative ideas. We don't have enough funding. We we can't just take it off the ticket prices at this point. Um, we have a 
a seven, a 9% tax that the state of Nevada has just um, levied on all entertainment. And we weren't considered entertainment until recently. Um, and then they, in, in, overnight in a dark, literally in a room and last minute, um, they came out and decided we were entertainment. And that was a deal that was struck um, while also working with um, a large company that was going to be building in Fernley and they wanted tax a tax break. So we got the taxes and they got the tax break. And this is all how the world gets really beautiful and complicated. Um, yeah, Burning Man gets taxed and then the big government doesn't, which is kind of annoying because that person happens to come to Burning Man. It's a good discussion I'm going to have with him someday when you talk about like where to get the money. Um, so we, so these are, you know, you asked a lot of questions, so I'm giving you a lot of points of light of like what, it's all about what are we doing? Like how are we trying to survive? So Rick's uh, program and the work that MAPS has been doing for years has, you know, the organization somewhat marginalized, you guys. Uh, but that was because of our survival, and you all knew that. Um, but you stayed on it, and you stayed at our side and not tried to take it too personally. Um, when I first started doing this, maybe it was, a, I started doing it 18 years ago, 19 years ago, but 15 years ago, the BLM did wanted to pretend there were no drugs here, and they wanted us to put signs at the entrance that said zero tolerance. And we were like, we're not putting any signs at the door at the door that say zero tolerance. That was just ridiculous. We didn't have zero tolerance, and that was their issue, not ours. But they wouldn't let us even mention where to go for if you had a bad trip. Um, we and they our emergency services were set up sort of secretly. So if you had a bad trip, then where you went was sort of in the in the sanctuary, in the secret sanctuary. And then, you know, our staff weren't allowed to call any place. They wanted to have sanctuaries and other places, and the word sanctuary meant drug place. What's really interesting about how things change, and that relates to how things change and how our feelings about fuel change and how our relationships change with Pershing County about nudity and how we work really hard, is that Rick knows that this year the BLM came to us and said, could you guys do a little... Talking about harm reduction, please. Oh, great. Ten years ago, when we wanted to point you all out on the map, when we wanted to do articles about you and, and the website, no, they didn't want that. It would they didn't want the mention of maps because maps meant the organization was then supporting um, the drug culture, whether it's philosophical experimenting with scientific or not. They see drugs as drugs. The word MDMA to them means people are getting high, not people are experimenting with, you know, the psychoactive health of, of, of you know, stress reduction and, and autism and PTSD. No, not if you're a BLM officer. You see that as something that you need to take away and you need to arrest people and that they're bad people. And we have worked really, really, really hard uh, to get the BLM to undo that. Um, so right now... Um, our relationship with the BLM is not bad. Um, some of you may have read the Chaco Taco, uh, the Chobani yogurt, um, six weeks, no more, like eight weeks ago. Um, we managed to regain ground in the battle of government relations between uh, the feds, and we've managed to uh, hold space still with the local government, which is uh, Pershing County. Um, and then, and then Washoe County is pretty. Washoe County is pretty cool. They're an urban area. They're the folks out of Reno. Um, so, 
so let's talk a little bit about um, the nonprofit and um, the different model of social good, and I can we can talk a little bit about how that relates relates to what we want to do in the future. So one of the reasons why I'm a new CEO is that the way we had no CEO before and we had no executive director before. There were six um, LLC members. I'm the youngest of the six. The oldest, I think, is 70, um, which is Michael Michael, Danger Ranger. I'm not really quite sure how old he is, but he started the Rangers, and he's been part of Burning Man since 1988, 87, 88, something like that. Um, and the group, we all got together. We created this nonprofit, and we had facilitators trying to get us to talk about what's next, what's our succession plan, what, what are we going to do with ourselves? Like, we've come up with this great mission. How are we going to implement it? At the end of two and a half days of facilitation, they decided that there were some really big things we wanted to do, that we really want to hold space um, to help make change happen in the world. Um, but we've got two people that wanted to retire. And what do you do? Go put a job description out for a CEO of Burning Man? In fact, that was one of the jokes in, in the course of everything. And in the end, um, they pointed to me. Uh, I got the short straw, but that's okay because I feel like this was what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I kind of probably realized it five or six years into being part of the organization. Um, my entree was um, I came to the event in 95 and 96. I saw photos in Academy of Art College, Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Then I met Larry Harvey, and I was his girlfriend for five years, and that set me into a position of being really, really trusted. I was trusted with the money. I was trusted with creating the infrastructure. So jump ahead. This is 19 years. So that's 17 years later when we have to look at what the future holds. Um, I had the first opportunity to actually start to express my vision. Um, and mine definitely is to be running a nonprofit. Who's, who asked about the revolutionary, the nonprofit? So when we picked our board members, um, one of which is Leo Villarreal, who uh, started Disorient, but he's also known for the lights on the Bay Bridge. Um, he's now a working artist around the world, getting commissions and doing great work. Um, we had a guy who worked in Gavin Newsom's um, uh uh, with his team in in San Francisco, and we have a we have a huge variety. We have businessmen, and we have artists. And when we did the deal between the nonprofit and the for profit, um, and I had to negotiate for my role, and I said I don't want to do this. It was a really powerful opportunity, actually, because I, I said I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of a nonprofit. Partly because it was, there was so much freedom to be an LLC. There was so much, like, making my own decisions, our own decisions. The six of us would make our decisions. You know, we'd fight the government, or we'd do this, and we'd do that. I said, I don't want to do it if it's gonna, if we're going to run it like a regular nonprofit. I just, it would make me really sad. And nonprofits do great work, and nonprofit, the structure exists for a reason. But so many of them get caught up in perpetuating their own existence. It's sort of like a, this fear, and then they... The executive directors are just like trying to survive, and then the organization, the board members, all have, like they love their power, and everybody feels so good because they've got it somewhere in their heart. But then they create a monster, because then there's metrics and there's paperwork, and um, we're in the middle right now of trying to figure out what are our metrics of success for Burning Man. I mean, what are our metrics of success for Burning Man? You know, I know. It, thank you for your laughter because that's exactly what we've been in the middle of doing and I get really, 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 really uncomfortable. Um, 
I mean, seriously, it's and it's fascinating because um, you asked the question about the the alternative, the uh, different nonprofit social and different model. So that's the most interesting thing for me personally to be involved in is stewarding uh, an organization who right now we're um, we're bringing in new people from the outside. We're also taking people that have been with us for many years and helping them be better managers. And so I'm having fun taking um, our existing culture and what we know how to do well and who we know we are and how we really enjoy being with each other and adding others from the outside world, but picking them very carefully based on their capacity to take the best case, the best lessons in the outside world and then dive deep and help us turn that what we're doing, turn it into a really powerful, powerful direction. Um, Jeff Skoll, anybody know what the, know what Skoll Foundation? So Jeff um, made, a, I think, his money in eBay, and he puts tons of money into in interesting, wild things, and he... Um, interesting wild to me is in like films like anybody who dumps a bunch of money into good social um, films and and uh, documentaries is that's, that's kind of wild there isn't a lot of people dumping their money into that but he also um, has a gathering once a year where he gives people awards for their social um, enterprise and their sh- social endeavors and so I, w- I was invited to go to Oxford and I was there and I was sort of like kind of I'm Burning Man yeah I'm cool and people are like oh you're Burning Man but 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 two days into it, I was like, whoa, because people were hugging me that were burners and people were hugging me that weren't burners because they knew something that I hadn't quite clicked with, which goes back to what you were asking, which was Burning Man's like a portal for the social work that these other groups are doing. And there were a couple of burners that were touching me on the shoulder and it gets me choked up when I think about it and saying it was Burning Man that made me realize I wanted to go work in India. And it was Burning Man that made me realize that I wanted to take this one woman taking cell phones and giving them the old flip phones to women in Africa in remote areas that were in some cycle for their pregnancy so that they could get answers, text answers, really simple stuff when they had either bleeding or something about their, and rather than going to the 15 miles of the town where the one doctor is or the nurse that travels around to the towns on a weekly basis, but then she needs an answer faster. Like, I realized that's what Burning Man's doing, is creating a portal for us to be ourselves, to be connected with people. So my hope is that the, the nonprofit will exist like, and will function like no other nonprofit ever has, that the staff members are well compensated. Um, we've been well paid at times, but the cost of living now in San Francisco is really messed up, so my staff aren't as well paid. Um, compared to many of their friends, which sucks. Um, but they're really, some of them are really, really talented, and I don't want to lose them just because, you know, the rents are going up and people can't afford. Um, and, but related is, and you asked the question about money, I think. So um, so I think Burning Man's an ecosystem, okay? I think we're all part of the ecosystem, and I think the organization is a facilitator. And the ecosystem is money. It's also social intention. Um, but... We're like this network node. We're a nexus. Like everybody comes to us, not everybody, but people come to us and say, um, you know, they're traveling and they're going to be in Barcelona. And I say, oh, email Spain at burningman.org. And then they email Spain and they find the burners in Spain. Or they say, um, I, and this is the thing that people keep writing about that in the last couple of years, and it's funny, 
they're getting it wrong and they're getting it right. People keep writing all the tech people and they're all they're networking at Burning Man. Well, if you think through that a little bit, it, the networking is natural to what happens here. And if people are that are change makers of any industry come to Burning Man and find others that they want to collaborate with and produce through that collaboration more effective tools for our planet, then that's really fucking good. <laughs> And then, yeah, <laughs> fine. Let's let's bring every industry that needs to find each other, any group that needs to feel empowered, that wants to collaborate. Now, be ourselves. Um, the technologists and and are, are getting the publicity for it um, because whoever decided two years ago that that was their favorite story to write out, we've seen a lot of different story arcs, and that's the latest one. And the, you know, the whole bit about the plug and play. I mean. What a conversation that I could sit here. We could have a whole hour-long conversation about what is plug-and-play and what's the org going to do about it. Um, and it's, I just talked about it this morning with a staff member. We just had it in a meeting yesterday. We're internally still trying to tweak the staff member's understanding about why care about plug-and-play. And someone yesterday said, well, we women in and they're paying $10,000 a person to be at that camp. And so that's a plug-and-play. And I said... Can we just, it was a meeting, can we, can we stop assuming that because someone pays money to be in a camp, that that's a bad camp? And someone else said, well, if, the, if anybody's paid to manage it, then it's, and I'm like, I can't believe we're having, it. we were at Burning Man having this conversation a couple of days ago. And Larry was like shaking his head and he said, no, and we still believe it's about what comes from it. And, it, and this again goes back to the money because Last year, there was a lot of focus on camps that had money, that were well funded, that might not have the camps might not have they might not have behaved well, but there are camps that aren't well funded that behave really shitty too. And we have removed people. It's been a number of years, but we've removed camps with bad behavior, and we'll remove people with bad behavior. So you can't just assume people that are wealthy and building beautiful camps are all behaving badly. I believe the organization has a responsibility to teach everybody how to do a really good camp and, and, we, and to be able to share information together so that people can understand the cycle of a good camp, so that people can understand it takes 10 days. You told the story about how you guys arrived on the right day and then you had dust storm and you were still, you're on schedule. Yay. But the organization, actually, I know of a couple of camps that said, well, I need 10, and an organization said, well, you can have five early arrivals. And then those camps got behind schedule because the organization didn't have the right dialogue with that camp. Who knew that they needed 10 early arrivals? So there is a responsibility that the organization has to help you guys do the work that you need to do. And at the same time, I'm finding it really interesting to navigate with those that have uh, that are well-funded and a huge number of camps that are well-funded that look like plug-and-play to some of my staff. And I, in fact, I have a list with me. I've been driving around visiting my friends because these are people that come and find me, which is fascinating. I go to New York, I meet people, and they're like, oh, this is my camp. And, and then they say, how can I do it right? So the organization, for whatever reason, was set up to help everybody organically figure it out. We weren't set up well to that guy with a whole bunch of money. There's their White Ocean is well funded by a Russian. And he came to me through a friend four years ago and said, I want to build a camp. And I said, OK, you can't just tomorrow build a camp. 
So the course of four years found friends that would help produce it, and then people, you know, didn't, relationship doesn't work out, so he goes on to the next one. And he still is the major funder of the camp personally. But yes, there are people in the camp that might pay somewhere between three and $15,000, partly because he decided that he didn't want to pay for it all, and he wanted the people to come to actually appreciate their responsibility in contributing in one way or another to it. And there are five other camps I know that are just like this. They're not just plug and play. So the organization is trying to then take these relationships that are brand new. Founder of Uber, founders of Airbnb, my Russian friend. um, There's some New Yorkers on, on, on another camp. And for us to all have this relationship, like where is the money needed? Like when I go and ask someone from New York for $100,000, which I did in last November, because he says, come see me in New York. So I go see him in New York. And I said, you know, you made a donation two years ago, and how about a donation it again? And, and he said, how about $10,000? And I was like, and he goes, well, you know, I put a lot of money into my camp. I put like $170,000 in my camp last year. And I said, well, this is what I'm doing to put make the culture. I said, how about 100000 He says, okay, fine. <laughs> like it really, literally, that's how the conversation went. It was pretty funny. And I was like, you were testing me. So I think that's a really interesting, like, that's that conversation I use in the organization a lot to describe the fact that his camp used to kind of be a plug-and-play, for sure. It still now has a bunch of RVs in it, but they're more interactive because in order to get a better placement, he and his campmates realized that they had to get more interactive, and they did. And then he put money into some artists and a cool art car. And then the organization also, I mean, he's a billionaire, and the organization really has real needs to do some of the programming, to keep the, the conversation going out in the world, to help the regionals, to do our regional leadership conference annually. It has 350 people that come to it that we're now doing in Europe, and then we did a mini one in, in Asia so that we can help the people learn from each other about how to change the world. But now I've got to enter that conversation on a level I've never done before. I, did, I actually got $100,000 from this guy. That was like, yeah. You know, and I was briefly in sales. And so I remember the first time I got $50,000 from the same guy two years ago. I went out. It was in New York. And I was like dancing around. And Larry's like, you really like this. And it wasn't just I got the money. It's that I, the relationship to me, I'm not afraid of money. I was raised by a super right-wing Republican not at all afraid. Like, he's the guy that made me have an allowance, didn't just give me the money. Like, that's really how I was raised. I I wasn't raised in that kind of wealth where some people right now ask for the, the car, they get the car. They get the new clothes, they get to go to whatever school. They get a lot of money to go away for a ski weekend. That's not, that's not how I was raised. I was raised conservative, upper middle class. So I brought all that to Murdering Man with me. That's one of my, I think that's one of my secret weapons. That's one of my... Um, power, what's the um, superpowers is money, and um, being feeling good about money and feeling safe with money, managing the money. Burning Man is solvent because my dad taught me. My dad was a Harvard MBA, taught me how to put everything in line. The decimal points, literally decimal points, line up when someone else was like, "No, we got to do it this way." So I'm not afraid, okay, of what the future looks like. I'm so certain that there's so much intelligence out there. There is so much opportunity. There are entrepreneurs that have kicked ass and done cool things like make Airbnb and and Uber happen that are standing around saying, uh, Burning Man, how can we help? And and they don't want to just throw down a million dollars. Like, you don't just throw that down. It's like, my dad didn't do it like that. He didn't just say, here's a hundred dollars, go do whatever you want with it. I had to tell him what I was going to do with it. And I actually had to plan it well. I had to um, work 
my summers in college in order to get my clothing money. My father paid for all my books and everything else. He didn't want me to struggle while I was at college. That was his decision. But if I wanted to play, I had to make the money to play. So I, I'm very conscious that we're, we're in a time that our culture is in a time that Burning Man is at a time where we have all of the abundance we need around us to solve all these problems. Um, and we can, some of it will be money and some of it will be advisors. Um, and some will be a little bit of both and some will be in really new radical nonprofit that has well paid staff members that are doing social change out in the world that are kicking ass that are right now. One of the things we're coming up with, which is, which is a fellowship program where we would actually pay people. Like we don't have any system where you're paying somebody in Europe. We actually are paying one woman in Europe right now to be a fellow. We do that and we want to do that in, in um, South America. We want to do that in Asia. Like our dreams are as big as the questions that you asked. Like there wasn't, I was smiling because everything you're asking me is exactly what we're asking ourselves and I can see the light. I can actually see, I feel totally confident we have the solution. We don't have the solution to widening the road. But actually we do. We could widen the road for a million dollars a mile. So if we want to spend a hundred million dollars, we can widen the road and we can have a hundred thousand people here. We would love to have a hundred thousand people here. I think we could have a hundred thousand people here. I think it would be insane, but it'd be kind of cool because I never thought we'd have 70,000 people here and it's pretty fucking cool. So, um, I think I've touched on a lot of what you guys have asked me about. Um, I was asked about top challenges and how can we help. Um, magical wish um, the top few challenges I've, I've, I think I've touched on a lot of them I, um, one of the biggest challenges we've had internally is to go from being a non-profit to the, from, go from being a for-profit to a non-profit and actually do the storytelling along with it so there's two employees in the non-profit and there were 65 in the for-profit and everybody's over here running the event but doing doing the regionals and doing some art stuff on the side and making sure this thing happens and then we bring it all together like this. We're now having to t- the metrics question that made you laugh so hard that makes me laugh every time someone asks me. So it's like, oh, fuck. It's, we still have to get our story down. Like, you know, it, it takes me an hour and some change to tell a story, okay, in a way that gets exciting enough for someone to go, yeah, I dig it. When I ask someone for a million dollars, I can tell them where it's going to go, but then when they, they want to know what are the results, what are the ways in which I will feel comfortable that there has been uh, 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 results from my money. Um, and... We don't have that answer. I mean, because I don't want to use the traditional ways of doing things, and I don't want to use the matrix, you know, and I don't want the check mark boxes. And we're internally, we keep creating those documents, and I it makes me nauseated, and I shake my head, and and then it has fifteen columns, and now we take them down to four, which is interesting, um, because we're doing things that are so nuanced um, that. We have to recreate. We have to just. We have to start from a different place, and it's a longer path. Uh, someone asked me about twenty twenty one hundred. Um, we are in a one hundred year plan. This is what I call it. And when you think about it that way, if we're thirty years into the one hundred year plan, that's really em- empowering. If it's not like it's a one hundred years from today, I'm old enough to have been part of twenty five years of the thirty year plan. So if you start thinking about that in increments, I I am not 
I mean, I'm a super practical person, and I can imagine that the energy, the love, the connectivity, the communications that comes from this experience can be replicated, and, and it can be replicated in other countries that are poor. We can we can do this in third world countries. It seems kind of absurd to imagine it because there is so much wealth, and we're driving our cars here, and we're burning things, but this is the first third of a bigger possibility. And we need to keep taking lessons from here and bringing them close enough to other cultures to see how they map in. And we've been doing, we were able to do that with Burners Without Borders when we were in Haiti or Peru or in the Philippines by just being ourselves when Burners are there and then they do creative things with the locals and and art enters so we're we're doing this, okay? We're mapping these questions. We're we're in, we're atten- we're going to countries that you wouldn't think there were burners in, and it just takes one burner to invite us to a university um, in Finland. Um, we were in Bhutan this year. We we were invited to speak at TEDx Bhutan, and one of our staff members spent forty five hours of travel to go and speak there. Why? Because it's Bhutan. You know, if someone's inviting Burning Man to come speak in Bhutan, we're going to come and talk about how Burning Man produces happiness. So their whole thing was happiness, of course, because it's Bhutan. So this is long and rambling and kind of all over the place, but I'm trying to put it together to give you guys a sense that um, I'm super psyched to be the chief engagement officer. I'm super stoked to be in a city of 70-plus thousand people here. Um, and to be in a world where we have 250 regionals, which are leaders around the world, on, in 30 countries and six continents and 35 U.S. states, who are volunteers, all of them, willing to um, create culture. And I'm super stoked that anybody that comes to Black, well, almost anybody that comes back to Black City, and certainly people that come to hear me speak, are usually opting into... Um, the chance to find how you can also help make it happen. Um, and th- this is sort of like the beginning and top level, blah, 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 of who I am and what we're doing and where we're going and why I know we'll get there. So if there's any more questions or if there's anything you want me to clarify, I feel I've run my course. Thank you. You have a question? So first of all, thank you for your clarity and your vision and your work to make this happen. That should not be left out when asking any question. Uh, this is one about scaling. Uh, those of us, I, I've been coming for seven years, so I was in between your just new arrivals and 15, 10-year. Yeah, I asked the 10-year question. Right. Yep. Um, Tickets have become an increasingly uncertain issue mm-hmm. for the last, what, four or five years? Mm-hmm. Once you started the lottery system, which famously had its teething problems, mm-hmm. you know, it's completely related to scaling and the arrival and exodus problem because the more people you have with the limited access road, the more you have to figure out a way to do that. So early arrival has helped. Uh, it might make 
sense to go to a system where you have a scheduled time to go through the gate and you come then, so you're essentially pulsing arrivals over the week before the event actually starts. If you can't widen the... I mean, if that would save $100 million, I, I don't see why you don't try it. But the biggest problem is for theme camps and artists and people who are repeat attenders, all of a sudden we're faced with the total uncertainty of whether we're going to have enough tickets. And, uh, and now this wrinkle of uh, car passes you know, has added another layer of uncertainty onto it. Can't you make that work better? You know, I mean, you've had 25 fucking years to do it. Just the, the, the gate experience, if you want to call it that, is crazy. Uh, How know, long did you wait to get in this year? Five and a half hours. And this oh, was three days which, before the event. Which day? Friday. Friday, yeah. Um, dust storm was Saturday. Yeah. And Friday was the five yeah. hours. So um, you have several. There's a bunch in there. Um, the one that's easiest to respond to would be we have looked at whether we can pulse inbound and we can't wrap our heads around the fact that there's so much human error involved in, as it is right now, people showing up with EAs that don't have people in their car with EAs. Um, they show up on the wrong day for the EAs. So pulsing um, arrivals would be similar to giving everybody their own EA or it's a, an early arrival. So just call it an A. So everybody gets an arrival ticket. Now we have a whole new problem. Um, if any one of you, you know, if you all made your decisions on exactly which way you were getting here, you knew exactly which day you were doing it, and you arrived exactly within an hour of the time you'd intended, then we can totally use that system. I mean it. That's what we thought about. We thought about. We thought it all the way through. We thought, well, even our staff. My secretary arrived here. She left town day late. She took all Wednesday off. She packed. And then finally, she was talking to me at 5 o'clock on Thursday. She was heading up the road. And I was like, I thought you were supposed to be here Thursday morning. She's like, no. And then, uh, we're not going to be on the internet until Friday afternoon. I was like, Jesus, we got to get these things done before the weekend. So she was a day late. I have people in my camp, like from England, their flights were delayed. They arrived last night at 8 o'clock at night. And I, she said, I'm so sorry. I meant to be here by dinner. So she's three hours off. We've talked about windows, like, okay, if we did a window time, what was forgivable? Do you, if, if the three of you guys arrive in the car at the same time, but you're right, you didn't. But now maybe you try, but you've got one for, you know, Friday evening, and these guys have got Friday morning, but they're great friends, and they all live together, and why can't, like, then now you have a new lottery system. Like, we are beyond being able to figure out how to accommodate the numbers and, and human error and real-life patterns of coming to Burning Man and weather and things like that in order to do an arrival pulsing system. So currently, it is what skunk works or whatever you call it when you just want to play with the things in the little Petri dish, but that one doesn't get a whole bunch of time. Um, we have, we've not had 25 years to deal with the 70,000-person question. That's four years old. Um, the lottery was in 2012. Um, the lottery started because the BLM is uncomfortable with our numbers. So we didn't choose 70,000 as our limit. 
I think that if we'd been allowed to grow naturally a little bit before now, we um, we might have solved the problems uh, a little more easily. But instead, we're bursting at the seams. The car pass was completely necessary, and it worked. Like, for the most part, there's not a person who didn't get to come to Burning Man this year because they didn't have a car pass. They were available on the secondary market. We did make them available through secondary purchases. Um, in the end, I ended up with extra car passes because people that I was giving certain tickets to and they were buying them from me or I had my own comp system, they were like, I'm covered, I'm covered, I'm covered, which is exactly what we knew was going to happen. In August, car passes were just changing hands and moving through the system. There's not a human being that didn't make it to Burning Man because they didn't have a car pass, period. So some of this is organic and some of it's going to get tweaked. Five hours to get into Burning Man in the car, yeah, I, I, we don't find that tolerable. We think three or four is normal. Um, but when it's more than that, yeah. So, yeah, we can't get any bigger. We sold exactly the same number of tickets this year as last year. Exactly. You have a follow-up and ticket question? Yeah. Sorry, I have a follow-up on the tickets and kind of like the pricing and how it works. Yeah. So I spent like a few months trying to get a ticket, and all of them were $800. And I think because that's a pre-sale now, everyone feels like they can yeah. budget and we just say that they're that not. Too. Yeah, that they're not like marking up the ticket, even mm-hmm. though probably a lot of people are. So like. Is that system going to stay in place? Is that something you think well, about? Well, you can always get someone to take the picture of the back of the ticket. Um, it'll say 800 on the ticket or it'll say 390 So if someone's trying to sell you an $800 ticket and it says 390 then they're definitely marking it up. Yeah. That, I would, that would, that's the first time I saw it this year um, at, at such a level. I mean, I had people contacting me. Um, we we have a the, – the, the ticket – there's a $190 ticket and there's a $390 ticket and there's an $800 ticket. And the $800 ticket is the ticket we sell first um, because it, it relieves the pressure on the system. And people that buy an $800 ticket can buy up to six. And that is really helpful for people with a whole bunch of money. They're willing to do it um, and takes the pressure off the system. Um, we are going to improve the pattern. And he, the gentleman in the back asked a question about theme camps and the availability. Um, well, this is where, you know, this is a, this is a whole other discussion, so I'll try to give you the best bullet points. Um, when we did the lottery, we knew exactly what we were doing. It, it ended up causing a bigger problem than we knew what was going to happen, which was that it, what we called it left a Swiss cheese, left a hole in people's camps. But we knew it was going to mess things up. We knew it so well that Larry and I saved 10,000 tickets. We saved them on the side. We did not sell every ticket we had. We kept some on the side because we didn't think this experiment was going to work right. And then we recurated those 10,000 tickets and filled in the holes. So then after that, if we had done that first time, first out of the box, people would have flipped out if we'd said, oh, well, we're, by the way, we're not selling all 50,000 tickets. We're selling 40 and we're going to hold 10 of them back. And, or no, vice versa. We're going to send ten. We're going to sell ten first to the theme camps, and then the rest of you can buy yours. Holy hell, would have broken loose! But that is exactly what we do now. Is we go to the theme camps and we have them that are of good standing, and they pick their their leaders and their their workers, and they can enter into a pre-sale. Now, last year we had twenty-five thousand people wanting twenty thousand tickets, and the feedback we got was. Why would you allow more people to register than tickets you have to sell us? 
So we did have we have some camps that aren't here this year because they couldn't get enough tickets to, from that system. That ends up being what we call sort of an, an on sale lottery for the camps, and that's not acceptable. So we are fixing that next year. So if a camp is invited to participate in the pre-sale, the members will be more likely to get a ticket than not. We people that register and then they don't show up, so we we uh, we uh, account for attrition. Um, and last year, fewer people, like everybody, more people showed up to buy the tickets than ever before. It's a longer conversation. It really is. Um, making sure that there's always change. There's always got to be change. Glastonbury is 180,000 people. Not everybody that went to Glastonbury last year gets to go to Glastonbury next year, period. And people just get used to it. It really sucks. I know it sucks. It, it, I, I have no answer. There should always be change. You should always open the door to the new ones. It will never, ever be here that everybody this year that came to Burning Man that wants to come back gets to go, that's, gets to try for a ticket first. It's just not going to be like that. So the systems work so that if you work on our project, if you're a leader in a camp, if you're volunteering in the infrastructure, you know, those are the areas by which if you're in deep enough, um, usually your chances of getting a ticket are, you know, 90% and probably 100% better than someone else that's just going through the on sale. And frankly, more tickets are going to be off the public and more tickets are going to get sold to people directly um, getting engaged and getting involved. Awesome. Everyone, thank you, everybody thank here. Marion. Thanks a lot. Um, and I'm Marian, M-A-R-I-A-N, at birdieman.org. So if you ever have a question, I honestly genuinely don't mind being asked question, questions by random strangers. Um, I like solving problems, and I might pass you on to somebody else. But if you ever have anything that you need whatsoever, that's the way to find me. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I forget to say this, uh, I really like the way that Marion organized what was basically a Q&A session. I didn't catch the name of the person she said that suggested taking most of the questions up front uh, rather than answering them one at a time, but uh, that is, in my opinion, a really good idea, and uh, I hope that more forums copy this style in the future. Also, uh, I hope that even if one of your own burning issues about the Burning Man Festival wasn't answered today, that you are at least aware of the fact that no matter what your own hot-button issue is, that the Burning Man organization has more than likely not only become aware of your issue, they probably have given it more consideration than uh, we sometimes give them credit for. Not only can their work be thankless at times, on top of that, they have to work during the burn. So, while many of us can get a complete change of pace once a year when we go to the burn, the people who are making it happen for us don't even get that luxury. As the old saying goes, uh, don't judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Personally, you couldn't pay me enough to do those jobs, uh, so I salute them all and uh, hope that they don't let some of us grumpy old men ever get them down. If you recall, about midway through Marion's talk, she spoke about how, in some ways, uh, Burning Man has become a portal for all kinds of other social activities. Well, I am one of those people whose life has undergone a significant change thanks to Burning Man. Although, for several years before my first burn, I had been hearing about it uh, from friends who would tell me that Black Rock City was the only place that now felt like home to them. 
Uh, I still, though, didn't get the itch to attend myself. However, in 2002, some friends and I agreed that, uh, well, Burning Man would be the perfect place for me to celebrate my 60th birthday. And uh, that 2002 burn marked, uh, well, one of the most significant turning points in my life. When I arrived in Black Rock City for the first time, I was this uh, geeky ex-lawyer named Larry. A week later, I left Larry in the ashes of the temple, and it was Lorenzo who drove home. The following year at Burning Man, my wife and I launched the first of the Planque Norte lectures, from which today's talk comes. It was a really small affair back then. We held eight talks during that week in uh, little white cardboard shelters. And uh, it was the first year that Allison and Alex Gray attended a burn, and along with John Hanna, Bruce Damer, Eric Davis, Daniel Pinchbeck, uh, and a few others, uh, they became the first of the Planque Norte lecturers. By 2006, we featured over 30 speakers and uh, were hosted by Antheon Village in one of the largest tents ever to grace the playa. And that was the first year that Ann and Sasha Shulgin attended a burn. And they gave their Palenque Norte lecture that year to over 500 people in that big tent. I only made it to the playa one more time myself. Uh, That was in 2007. But thanks to Christopher Peza and the entire crew at Camp Soft Landing, the Planque Norte lectures continue to be a Black Rock City feature every year. And if you go to our SoundCloud page, you can listen to more than 70 past lectures from this series, including most of the talks that were given that first year. In fact, it was those 2003 Planque Norte talks that I used to uh, play around with uh, what then was this new RSS technology enabling podcasting. Had I not already had those uh, recordings on hand to uh, use with my geeky little tests, well, these podcasts from here in the salon probably wouldn't be taking place today. Marion spoke about uh, how when she was seeking donations, she's uh, sometimes asked about results. You know, what kind of result will an investment in Burning Man bring? That's what the donors seem to ask sometimes. Well, I'm just one person who came to his first burn more or less on a lark. But much to my surprise, it became the major portal through which I got the idea for these podcasts, which have now become the main feature of my old age. (laughs) And the result of my involvement in Burning Man is that over the past 11 years, these programs have now reached more than a million people in over 100 countries. Without Burning Man in my life, you and I wouldn't be sharing this moment right now. And I should point out that it was the experience of participating with everybody else on the playa. That's what did it for me. I've never met Marion or Larry Harvey or anyone else involved in the Burning Man organization. But I have met a lot of my fellow burners. And to tell the truth, I'm more proud to call myself a burner than I am of being a lawyer, a naval officer, an entrepreneur, a (laughs) a movie stuntman, or any of the other crazy things that I've done during these past 73 years. Because once you understand that being a burner is more, much more, than just having spent a week in the Black Rock Desert, well, then you know how much you owe to everyone who makes that experience possible which obviously means the organizers, uh, both the paid and the volunteer staff, the rangers, the theme camp organizers, and everyone in attendance who also understands that being a burner becomes a way of life. It's actually a state of mind and one that, 
well, in my opinion, I think can bring about the change that we so desperately need in the world today. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>